So that's page 1234, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. This is God's word. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. <coughs> Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to those verses that we read earlier in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 to 17, a letter to the church in Pergamum, page 1234 of the Pew Bibles. These letters that we remember are letters to real churches, but also representative churches. So there's something for us to learn here, uh, as if uh, Christ was writing very much to uh, the church today and all of its challenges. These churches representative of the, ch of the, the challenges that we face. Sometimes um, people ask me to recommend a church in another part of the world, and, and sometimes I've got someone that I can talk to and, and, and ask for a recommendation and pass it on. Just lovely to hear today that two of our folk, uh, uh, Gareth and, and uh, Stephanie, are attending a church in Maastricht uh, today, uh, the Damascus Road Church, tremendous name, uh, but uh, they're, they've gone there and, and uh, we trust that they're going to have a welcome from God's people in Maastricht and uh, we hope that that will be really fruitful for them and for the church. Uh, but sometimes that happens. We, we're able to put people in contact with churches in other parts of the world. Uh, sometimes we, we just end up, sometimes I end up just doing what, what what folks sometimes have to do, and that is you just search the internet and see what their websites say, and try to work out what sort of church they are, and you read all the descriptions. What are we like about us? We're this and we're that. We're friendly, but we're serious. We're relevant, but we're rooted, and so on and so on. I've had to write some of that stuff. It's, it's really difficult. And whenever I read these letters to the churches in Revelation, I, I sort of wonder what their websites would have said. How would they have described themselves? It's pretty unlikely that they would have described themselves in anything like the way that Jesus described them. Because he saw their strengths and their weaknesses perfectly. We're sometimes blind to those. And, and he encourages them in their strengths. Sometimes he encourages them in the things that they feel broken about. Sometimes he rebukes them in their compromises. We, we turn to the, the letter of Pergamon tonight. Jesus introduces himself in some of the words from the initial vision of Jesus in 
chapter 1, and he introduces himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. It's coming out of his mouth in chapter 1, and, and there a reference to his word, of course, but both it's, it's, it's two cutting edges, one to, to bring blessing and one to bring curses, one to bring encouragement, one to bring in rebuke. And that's exactly what happens with Pergamum. Pergamum is uh, about 50 miles north of the last church that we looked at, Smyrna. You can see it on the map here. It's the most northerly of the, the churches in, in the little uh, circle that uh, takes place through what we would call Turkey today. For some time, it had been the administrative capital of the area, and so it was an important part. That uh, honor moved down to Ephesus at one point, but it, it left Pergamum with a great history uh, there was a great library there. It was at Pergamum, apparently, that parchment was developed, uh, parchment called after Pergamum, and, and uh, that was what documents were written on across the ancient world for, for many, many years. But, but Pergamum was a tough place to be a follower of Jesus. There were, there were a number of alternative religions in, in, in Pergamum, uh, false religions. Uh, because of the state connection, it had had a, a great temple to the divine Augustus, one of the Caesars, and to the, the goddess Roma built there. So there was a sort of a state religion. And then there was a temple to uh, Asclepios. Uh, you, you've maybe seen uh, that medical symbols today often have a serpent on them. Asclepios was the, the god of medicine, of healing. There was a medical school there, and, and, and his symbol was the serpent. That's where that comes from even uh, today. And most significantly of all, above the, the town, above the city, there was a great altar to Zeus, a massive structure, and uh, it maybe is what is behind that uh, phrase, Satan's throne, this idea that there was a great throne sitting over the city. Uh, and uh, therefore, th it was a real religious melting point, but, but, but pretty tough to be a Christian in. Because of that state connection, we're, we're led to believe that, that it was one of those places where there was a very positive idea about worshiping uh, the state and worshiping Caesar and, and the idea that you would take a, a little offering and go to an altar and you would swear Caesar is Lord and then you would get on your way. And, and, and the point was, of course, that Christians couldn't do that. And so Pergamon became one of those places where they were persecuted. You notice that in verse 13, there's a mention made of a man called Antipas. He was put to death in Pergamum for his faith, and we don't know who he was. It's, it's maybe an isolated incident, but he had taken a stand. Undoubtedly, he'd taken a stand over the uniqueness of Christ in the midst of this religious melting pot, and he had paid for it. You notice how Jesus describes him. He describes him as my faithful witness. How beautiful that is. Remembering especially that as Jesus is introduced in the first chapter, he is described as the faithful witness. So Herod, so Antipas had not wavered in his faithfulness and, and therefore he was just like Jesus. That's, that's really what Jesus is saying here. It's interesting, isn't it, that the world, you, you'll hear this all the time, the world has an idea of what Jesus is like. But it's entirely a wrong idea. You'll hear it said, Jesus would never do this. Jesus would welcome everyone. 
Jesus would never exclude anyone. And what, what you'll find is that people are just projecting their ideas of tolerance onto Jesus in order to serve their own ends. But the Jesus of the Bible says that the people who are like him, who espouse his values, stand for what is true and hate what is evil, even whenever it incurs the wrath and the outrage of the culture. So for all of these reasons, you see, this was a hard place to be a Christian, and, and Jesus describes it as a place where Satan has his throne. Some of our, our charismatic friends, maybe you come from that uh, sort of church, uh, some of our charismatic friends have developed this into the sort of idea to talk about particular strongholds of the enemy. Maybe even you've heard the phrase territorial spirits. That seems to be going a little bit further than the Bible does, but, but there are certainly places where the expressions of the culture are more given over to anti-Christian values than other places. And this was one of those places where Satan's throne was, where Satan dwells. So here's a church that's under incredible pressure. What does Jesus say to it? We're gonna sum it up just with three simple things that we hope will uh, capture what the flow of the passage is. First of all, to say this, your, your context is known, your, your context is known to Jesus. You see that uh, it says Jesus knows where we live. I know where you live. There's a phrase that has a certain uh, reference in Northern Ireland, doesn't it? Some of you have been in a place where you've had that shouted at you. I know where you live, mister. Some of you maybe have shouted that at somebody. <laughs> well, it's not a threat here. It's an absolute encouragement. In some of the other churches, you see, he says things like, I know your deeds. I, I, I know some of the things that you face and so on. But and we would expect that because Jesus walks amongst the lampstands, walks amongst his church. And so you would expect him to know what's happening in the church. But here he's saying, not that I know the church particularly, but I know the setting that you as the church find yourself in. I know your context. I know that it is a, a center of paganism. I know that it's full of all sorts of superstition. I know that they're trying to enforce the worship of Caesar there more than anywhere else. I know that you're in a place that is deeply opposed to me and my message. And yet, as he says, he, as he praises them, you've remained true to my name. It's a comforting thing, isn't it? That Jesus knows where you live. He knows your situation. He knows the situation that he has put you in in order that there you might be faithful. So for some of us, it might be that he's saying, as it were, I know where you work. Or I know that your workplace is, is sometimes hostile to the gospel, but I've put you there. Or I, I know where you socialize. I, I know that amongst your many friends, there are times that your faith is just unwelcome. But I've put you there. Or maybe the issue is actually where you live. Jesus would say to you, I know that you're in a family circle, some of whom consider your relationship with me unnecessary, intrusive, awkward, embarrassing. But I've put you there. 
God does not make mistakes about the place that he puts us and calls us to be faithful in. And there he calls us to be faithful, no matter how hard that call might be for Antipas, it was incredibly difficult. It was at the cost of his life. And Jesus gives him this incredible title, his title, my faithful witness. Your context is known. But this is a double-edged sword. So the second thing we want to see here is that your compromises are named your compromises are named because these believers had a tough time. They were called to live for him within a tough setting. And yet that does not mean that Jesus is going to say, well, you know, because you're having such a tough time, we're just going to gloss over all the things that aren't going so well. Jesus still highlights the really serious problems that they have and the compromises that they've made. Don't forget, this is Jesus who loves his church much, much more than we do. And therefore, he, he does this out of love for their benefit and for their survival. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. During the summer, I took my boys to, to visit Edinburgh Castle, and we tagged on to one or two of those tours that go around with those incredibly enthusiastic tour guides, and we listened to a potted history of, of Edinburgh Castle. Some of you perhaps have, have done this. Interestingly, I now know that it is the most besieged place in all of Britain. Uh, 23 times it was surrounded and attacked, and, and some of those attacks were successful and some of them were not. In 1314, there was an English, this is a story usually between the English and the Scottish, of course. Uh, there was an English garrison comfortably stationed inside the castle, and the forces of Robert the Bruce were outside trying to get in. And the English paid close attention to the gate, making sure that it was well defended. But during the night, 30 Scottish uh, men climbed the north face of the castle wall, the, the, the cliff, scaled the wall, a remarkable feat, and they fought their way down to the gate and, and opened the gate and let all the Scottish people in. The rest is sort of messy after that. But, but the point is, is, is clear, isn't it? If you're defending the castle, you need to be vigilant at, at all points, not just at, at, at one point or two points, but at all points. And in some ways, this was what the problem at the, the, for the Christians at Pergamon. While, while they were defending the gate, Satan had sent his forces over the walls. And you see, there's a sense in which we, we've got to understand that, that Satan doesn't really care how he attacks the church or the members of the church. Our, our lives. He doesn't, he doesn't really care that much. You think of what he's, we've seen already in Revelation. How does he attack the church? Well, he uses persecution, doesn't he? We've seen that very clearly through all of these letters. Great frontal attack on, on God's people that seeks to intimidate and scatter them. He also seeks to bring disunity because he, 
he changes his tack, not only from attacks on the outside to attacks on the inside. He, he seeks to bring disunity. Remember in Ephesians, he talks about some of them losing their first love, which we understood as a reference to them not loving one another as they should. So they were sort of strong on doctrine and weak on love for one another. And Satan knows that, that if he's able to do that, then it, it, it is a major victory for him. He also attacks the church through false teaching getting God's people to believe the wrong things and accept false teachers. And, and if, he, if we do that, then he's, he's gained another major victory. Immorality, we're going to see that. If he can turn God's people towards that, then he knows that he's been successful in attacking the church. Many of these things overlap. Persecution, disunity, false teaching, immorality. In churches, he uses these things. In, in our lives, he uses these things. And there's a sense in which he doesn't care all that much what he uses so long as it works. And the, the Christians in Pergamum, you see, had defended themselves against persecution. They'd stood really strong against that in the days of Antipas. But they had succumbed to false teaching and the immorality that went along with it. While they had been defending the gates... Something else had crept over the walls. You look at verse 14. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it seems that this is all referring to the same thing, the teaching of Balaam is, is really the same as the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And, and like so much of, of Revelation, there's an Old Testament background that helps us understand this. It's, it's back in the book of Numbers. I think uh, Peter looked at this not all that long ago. Uh, Balaam was a, a prophet, and uh, Balak, Balak was, a, was an enemy king, a Moabite. And Balak bribed Balaam to curse the Israelites. They were about to cross the Jordan come into the promised land into what had been Balak's territory. But every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse the Israelites, rather than curses, out came blessings. You can read about this in Numbers 22 and around there. He couldn't help it. must have been really rather funny to watch. God worked in the whole situation so that all he could do was pronounce blessings. So in a sense, he wasn't a false prophet. He really did hear from God, but he was a wicked prophet. And what we find is that though Balaam's plans were frustrated, Balaam comes up with another idea. He, he was a prophet for sale. He, he's doing all this for money. And so he goes to Balak, it seems, and he says, look, this cursing thing is just not going to work. Every time, every time I open my mouth, I can't, I can't help it. But there's another way to bring disaster upon the Israelites, not from outside pressure, but from internal corruption. Send your women among them. Send the Moabite women among them. They will entice them to take part in their feasts and the idolatry and the immorality that goes along with that. And this will weaken the people like no curse or no attack could ever do. Numbers 31 speaks of these women. It says this, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. 
It's a terrible plague that the Lord sent among his people in judgment. 24,000 died. They were enticed away from obedience to the Lord and its accompanying blessing into disobedience and its accompanying judgment. Now, you've got to think about it, don't you? You know, any prophet who was convinced of the power of the Lord in that way, so clearly seen in in his life, so that, that, that he could only open his mouth and speak God's word at a time. Any prophet of the Lord who could understand the workings of the Lord and genuinely hear from the Lord and yet come up with a way to damage the people of the Lord and prosper their enemies is a truly wicked prophet. And Balaam was such a man. See what it says in Revelation chapter two. He, he taught Balak to entice the Israelites. Not, not that he let him or he inadvertently tipped him off. He taught him. There will always be people. How discerning we need to be in these days. There will always be people from within what looks like the people of God. And they look like they're on God's side. People who ought to lead God's people in faithfulness and truth, but actually work sometimes consciously for the destruction of God's people. One wonders what sort of judgment is reserved for prophets like that. So this is what was happening in in Pergamum. And there were some who, by their teaching, were encouraging idolatry and immorality. The food was sacrificed to idols. It wasn't necessarily wrong in itself. Paul goes into that in, in 1 Corinthians. But it seems here that it is involved in idolatrous worship and the immorality that goes along with it. And so it, it, it opens the door to all of these things. Now, uh, Nicolaitans were named after. It is thought Nicholas of Antioch, who was one of the seven in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 6, and, and this is what one little comment here says. Nicholas of Antioch is supposed to have given his name to a group in the early church who sought to work out a compromise with paganism to enable Christians to take part without embarrassment in some of the social and religious activities of the close-knit society in which they found themselves. A compromise with paganism, which meant they could follow Jesus without embarrassment. Now, that's behind what was happening there, and it's behind what's often happening today. People who want there to be no embarrassment about their allegiance, such as it is, to Jesus Christ. No cost, no jarring of their discipleship against the culture. No difference with the world. You notice that it's the whole church that has embraced this. It's it's, it's not, sorry, it's not the whole church that has embraced this. Only some had. And yet the whole church is culpable. It's the whole church that is called to repent because the whole church should have made sure that there was no room for such teaching or activity within their fellowship. Oh, supremely, this is a responsibility of the leadership of the elders and so on. But it is also a responsibility of all of us. We watch over one another. 
we put ourselves under one another's care and bear responsibility. So you see all these, these various attacks then that, that Satan pulls into his, his toolbox, as it were, as he attacks the church, as he attacks the church members. They're not menus from which we choose to stand against. It's not that we say, well, I'll stand against this, but I'll, I'll be soft on that. Two out of three ain't bad. The end result, you see, is the same. Doesn't matter how the castle falls, but if the castle falls, the castle falls, whether they come through the gates or over the walls. The church is destroyed. Now, I, I wonder, as we, as we look at this letter, it's a very simple letter, a simple scenario, but have we resolved this in our minds and hearts as God's people? If we're here tonight and we're Christians, we're seeking to honor the Lord, we're saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Because you see, to be saved is both to be saved from something and also out of something. And there are times in the history of the world when that out of something is incredibly important. First Peter 4 writes, Peter writes to the Christians there. In verse 3, he says this, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." Have you resolved in your heart that to follow Jesus Christ is in some cases to have the world look on you and think it's strange, that you will not fit in, that you will not be always the popular one or the one who is lauded and applauded? Because this was a truth that the Christians in Pergamum had refused to stand on. They'd had a great example in Antipas. Was it the case? We don't know. Was it the case that, that, that they decided, do you know what? That sort of 100% commitment is really expensive. Poof, remember Antipas? Cost him his life. Let's see if we can find a way to fit in, to keep our heads down, to blend in with the culture so that we don't stick out. And they are rebuked. And Antipas is the faithful witness. Your compromises are named. And then the last thing is, is your reward is, is promised. Your reward is sure. Because you see, Christ here offers to those who overcome what the world can only emulate. As with the other letters, Christ challenges the churches in order that the churches might change. These rebukes are opportunities for repentance and restoration. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But you notice the incentives, the promises that he gives. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. There are a lot of different interpretations as to what these things mean. The manna, of course, was what fed and satisfied the children of Israel in the desert as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. You see, to follow Jesus in the way that Jesus is speaking of here in this letter is to place yourself on the edge of the culture. The Nicolaitans were looking for a tryst with the culture, involvement without embarrassment, you remember. But to be an overcomer, to be one like Antipas, meant stepping to the side of the rejected Jesus, the one who was an embarrassment. So the question you see then becomes for these people, well, how are you going to survive if it's being on the inside of that culture that gives you access to the markets and to goods and to services? How are you going to survive if you're a stranger, if you're on the outside? And Jesus saying, I'll provide for you. God looks after his people. He did it in the desert with the manna. He sustained them as they turned their backs on Egypt as they walked away from idolatry and to his place. Do you trust God for that? Do you know that in honoring him in the way that he calls you to tonight, he will sustain you? Your reward is sure. The white stone, it's, it's also quite hard to pin down. It's probably, probably to do with access. Uh, some of these guild meetings, remember we said that if you were going to be a carpenter or whatever, you had to be part of the guild. There were all sorts of secret societies and all sorts of things like this. And, and uh, you had to have some sort of entrance token. It was like a ticket. You had your white stone, you get in. But, but these Christians, you see, they weren't going to get in. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You're in, you're in with me. You have access with me. You might be on the outside of the culture, but you, you have access to heaven because of what I have done. Isn't that the access that matters? Don't we know that? After all, look at what he has done. On this stone, there is a, a new name. Doesn't God do that in the Bible often? You wonder why he does that? Abram becomes Abraham, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul, and so on. It's, it's a testament to the fact that, that Jesus changes us. The old is gone, the new has come. Absolutely new creations. This is a new life you're given. And now here you see you have, you have access and a new life. It's a mysterious personal work, so it's only known by those who receive it. But, but you know and I know the work that Jesus has done in transforming us, and we know that it is eternally significant. Now, you see, the world promises that. The world promises blessing, access, being on the inside, but it doesn't deliver because Jesus is the one who delivers. He's the one who gives us the acceptance that really matters. He's the one that brings the transformation that lasts forever. So what about it? As we 
sit here tonight listening to this letter to a church 2,000 years ago, also representative of our church today. Are we aware that in some things we've been good at guarding the gate? But the walls are broken down. And if we carry on, we will fall. Repent. Turn to him again, to the one who really sustains and the one who eternally welcomes. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that as we look at the crumbling castles of our lives, there are many places where the enemy would press in upon us and we would easily fall. Forgive us for making those entrances of the enemy easy, for throwing open the doors sometimes ourselves, Give us a determination that you are the one whose approval we need. Your blessing is what we were ultimately made for. Help us to know that all that Satan offers are lies and deceits, that Christ is true and sweet. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.